The views and opinions expressed by the guests on this podcast are that of their own. In no way, shape, or form do they reflect the official policy or position of the Bottom Dwellers Dive Shack. You've descended into the Bottom Dwellers Dive Shack. A commercial diving podcast by working divers for divers. This episode is brought to you by Ocean Eye Inc. Ocean Eye's main focus is you, the commercial diver. With industry leading end to end service and expertise, they got everything you need for your next dive job. You need your gear maintenance or repaired? Need some new products or consulting? Ocean Eye's got you covered. Give them a call at 610-621-5750 or visit them online at OceanIE.com. Well, we're here again, Bottom Dwellers Dive Shack. This is LB Diver. I'm here with Sam Humphrey. How you doing, Sam? I'm doing good. Great. Thanks for having me on the show. Nice. Yeah, Johnny's not here with us today. He is uh, taking a much-needed vacation with his little one. Um, so it's just going to be me and you, Sam. Is that all right? Yep, sounds good. Man, it's been a long time since uh since I've seen you. Last time I saw you was a uh, we we briefly did a video call on a I think Facebook video or something like that. And then uh yeah. before that the last time I saw you was a uh, was out at Olmstead. That's where I first met you. Yeah. Yeah, that's that was yeah, 4 or 5 years ago. Yeah, it was Olmstead with Global. At least. Man, that was a huge job, wasn't it? That was a great job. Yeah, it was long. I started working on that one in 2012, I think. So. Oh wow! So you and were on that for a while. I didn't finish the job until 2019. Yeah, six years, you know, off and on. So fairly seasonal. It was a good six to seven months a year spent there for six years. Yeah, so yeah we it was a big job. We weren't on the same uh, barge. I forget what barge you were on. I I was on a night shift as well. So you know, we were like the moles yeah. working at night. Right. Night shift was a better shift. I, I loved it. I loved, you know, I didn't mind it at all. You know, was, you, you got as much sleep as you wanted and, uh, yeah, it's pretty cool at night on the, uh, yeah. river right there. But yeah, that's, that's the last yeah, time I saw the you. Humidity was better at night. So it was a lot more, it wasn't so hot, you know, during the day. I don't know how those guys stood it during the day and those hot days. I know. Yeah. But, uh, so we wanted to have you on because you put out a book called Wet Pay, and I want to talk about Wet Pay. I mean, uh, a lot of people that know you know that you did suffer a terrible accident, and um, instead of you know, instead of being counterproductive and negative, you chose to focus on your writing, and you wrote this book, and I'm sure it was a labor of love. Is 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 this something that you've always wanted to do that you've kind of been putting off, or how did it come about? Um, I, you know, being a diver and stuff, you, you go through, it's an interesting lifestyle. People are always asking you, you know, things, how, what's your deepest depth? Do you ever work with sharks? Blah, blah, blah. So always in the back of my mind, I figured out oh, when I retire, maybe I'll write a book about it. You know, it's, and cause it, you know, it can be a lot of interesting experiences. And then, like you say, I had a, I had an accident, a motorcycle accident. Actually, while I was working at Olmstead Dam, I went down to visit some friends in Alabama uh, that's another story. And I actually wrote a book about that called What the Hell Happened to Me. And it's available in the same places that wet pay is available. But um, 
Yeah. So I, it was in the back of my mind to write the book. And then, uh, after the accident, you know, I'm, you know, I'm paraplegic. So I'm in a bed a lot and just, you know, there's not a whole lot I can do, especially being, you know, in my late fifties. So I decided that I'll start writing and I actually started writing wet pay, uh, probably three years ago. And, uh, then I hit, you know, I hit the, hit a wall and I stopped writing for about six months or so. And, and then I found out about this program that deals with helps paraplegics with all kinds of stuff. And it really turned my attitude around. It's like, man, I got to get back on the horse, you know, and finish writing this book. But before I finished wet pay, I wrote this other book. What the hell happened to me? I just had to get that off my chest. So I wrote that book, put it out there. And it's like, Ooh, that went pretty good. I was pretty happy with it. And people liked my writing style, which was a good boost for me to write wet pay. So I went ahead and finished that up and was, you know, wanted to have it out before Christmas and, did get it out just about Thanksgiving, I think. And so it's on the market. It hasn't been on the market long, but, and I got into writing it and it's like, I figured it'd be one book be my whole career. And, and I, you know, I get carried away. It's like, man, there's more than one book here. So I split the story in half basically. And wet pay goes from the start of my career to about 2002, which more or less is the first half of my career. Nice. And I can't wait and, to uh, uh, so read now this I'm working second on book. Volume yeah. two. Nice. It, yeah, it should be good. It kind of works well, too, because I had worked mainly inland in my first part of the career. And then it just so happened about, well, Katrina, well, actually, Ivan hit down in the Gulf of Mexico. And so it changed my diving. I started working in the Gulf. So the second part of the book is going to be have more Gulf diving and some other, you know, they have more different stuff, different stories, not just inland stuff. Yeah. Because I believe the first book, let's put a year on it. It ended about the, what, to the uh, 2000s, like the beginning of 2000. Yeah. 2001 or 2002, okay. right in there. All right. And yeah. started, it was the start of my career in basically 1986 when I graduated high school. It actually starts with high school. So like 1984, but that's only one chapter. So. And that's what I really loved about this book. You mentioned earlier that people liked your writing style. I also love your writing style. I love the voice that you use. And, you know, you kind of put us right there with you in the room as you're telling your story. Um, it's not like it's diver grammar or, or, or divers speak the whole way through. It's just a comfortable, like, you know, chat with a friend type of thing, telling you a story. But it's all it's all grammatically correct because uh, part of the reason is because of your background. Right. What's your uh, background growing up? Yeah, uh, well, yeah, my background growing up is um, three of my grandparents and both of my parents were teachers and my both grandmothers and my mother were English teachers and language teachers. So, you know, they beat grammar and stuff into my head and spelling. So I'm one of the rare divers that can actually spell, you know, <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, that helped with the background. And I took some creative writing courses, you know, in my education going up and and uh, ended up with a, a BS in biology, so I had to write papers and stuff for that. So writing, you know, is, is kind of in my in my tool bag. But I appreciate that you like my writing style, and that's what I tried to do. I wanted it to be, you know, friendly and you know, like here we are, have let's have a drink and tell a story or two, basically, you know. Yeah, because some of our work is it's pretty boring. You know, I think uh, it is. Yeah. 
I forget. Yeah, they say hours and hours of boredom marked by moments of sheer terror. That's what I was going to ask you to recite. <laughs> hours and hours of boredom marked by moments of sheer terror. <laughs> and you hope you don't have too many of those moments, right? Not too many, but, you know, it kind of adds a little excitement, makes the stories a little better. Right. So at the beginning of the book, you go through your life, your, your early beginnings, and then you, you go through a portion of a, in dive school, uh, what you had to go through dive school. And that's really reminiscent of what a lot of, you know, dive students out there still go through. Not a whole lot's changed. And then, uh, that first, you know, again, first portion of the book, you, uh, talk about like what you had to do to get dive jobs, how much you had to hustle, how you had to have a side hustle, and plans because dive work's not steady when you're first starting out, right? Right. Yeah, it's really hard to get into it, you know, break into it. It's You have to know somebody, basically. And the only way you know somebody is to get on jobs. So, And you can't make enough money in the beginning to pay your bills if you're just doing diving. Well, you're not going to start out diving. You're going to start out tending. Mm-hmm. You know, it's rare to go right out of dive school, even though the dive schools tell you, oh, you're going to be a diver when you get out. You're not. You're going to start at the bottom. You're going to be a tender, you know, and you got to go through that crap and, and get to where you go. So what were your feelings after dive school uh, when, when you went to the Gulf? Had you ever been to the Gulf before? I had never actually been to Louisiana. I've been to a couple of places in Texas, but never been to Louisiana or Alabama, never been to the deep South, you know, and never did, worked down there. I was born and raised in the Pacific Northwest. So yeah, it was a, it was a big change, but I was lucky the dive school that I went to my dive instructor. He was, he like beat it into our heads. You're not going to be a diver when you get out of dive school, you know? And like I say in my book, you know, he's, you're going to, you know, very few people that go through dive school actually make a full-time career out of it. You know, he told me to my face, he said, you're not going to make it. He said, you know, you don't even bother trying because you're not going to make it, you know? And, and so I wasn't, I was expecting to be, you know, have a lot of hard work. So it wasn't a slap in the face when I got down there. You know, I was looking forward to, you know, it was a little slower start than I was hoping for, but it was basically kind of what I expected from what my dive instructor had told me. Well, that's good. So it wasn't a total culture shock or anything like that. You kind of got filled in before you went. Yeah. No. Because the you, attitudes and the food yeah. was, you know, the big difference, but the work wasn't. Right. So you got it, you know, you got prepared well, it sounds like, which again, you know, yeah. depends on what school you go to and instructors that you have, you might not get that preparation. I know uh, speaking with Jeff Teals over there in Santa Barbara, He's telling his students the same thing that uh, Mr. Talbot told you, you know. Maybe, yeah, Teals, maybe, I know yeah. him. And he's good. Yeah, he's a good, honest guy. So Maybe not yeah, so much you're not going to make it, you know, but. You know, yeah, no, um, you know, Talbot was a, he was an old Navy diver, so he is a little gruff. But, nice. So yeah. that being said, if you were to go back in time and see yourself enrolling in dive school, would you have said the same thing? man, I don't think I'm going to make it. <laughs> I don't think he's going to make it. Or did you always have that uh, you know, as a dream? I, that's what you're going to pursue and that's what you're going to do. Yeah, no, I knew when I went in. I mean, I wanted to be a diver starting in high school. It's like I started scuba diving in high school. And I was like, I loved being under the water so much. It's like, whatever I can do to make money, I got to do something underwater. So I knew I was going to make it, you know, one way or another. So that was already pretty much ingrained in your DNA at that point. So there was really nothing anybody yeah, could say or do. 
Right. Right. Yeah. No, I, even Talbot, you know, he told me you're probably not going to make it. I told him, oh, yes, I will. I'll be the one that lasts 30 years. And out of your class, how many did last? Only yeah. me. Just you. Yeah. And that's a common story, you know. But there was only 14 people in my class. So, you know, I had a really small class. There's a couple other guys. There's like in the class before me, there's a couple guys that have made, you know, made their career out of it. And a couple classes after me that I knew when I was in dive school that, that are still diving in fact, you know, they're still diving. So. And I really love how There's you, a few of us. And, and, and I really love how you, again, talk about like the early beginnings, the stuff that you had to do, um, you know, the side jobs and, and all that. Um, so I wanted to ask you about the booger bomb that's in the book. So you have a story about a booger bomb, which is tied to the purchase of your first hat before you were just diving a rat hat, company hat for the longest, right? Right. You mind yeah. sharing that story? Yeah, it's it's in the book. Make sure you buy the book and read it. But Sam's going to tell us <laughs> the story. Okay. Yeah. Well, I was, I, like I say, I've been diving the rat hat for almost eight years and, and the company that I was working for changed hands. So they weren't doing supply and they didn't want to supply the company hat anymore. And, you know, I was getting crap, and they were saying, no, you're not going to go out on jobs if you don't have your own personal hat. So I had to get a hat, and then they're, you know, to come by that they're a chunk of money. Back then, it was, you know, 2500 or 2000 for a used hat. It's about double that now, I think. But More than double. So I was, you know, looking for a hat. Yeah, they're about double. And uh, a friend of mine, he had, um, he wanted to buy a brand new hat, but he couldn't justify having two super light. So he said, you know, you buy this one that allow me to buy this other one. My wife won't get pissed off at me, blah, blah, blah. So it's yeah, good deal. Let me try it out, you know. And we happened to be going on a deep job up on a dam in uh, northwestern Washington. I think we were diving around 170, 180 feet. And uh, it was in the spring, I think. And uh, so the weather's kind of cold, you know, and you kind of get these stuffed up nose and that kind of deal. And, and usually we take Benadryl, but you know, people do that to get cleared. And I didn't, mine wasn't so stuffy as that. I wasn't that worried about it. And I went down and I made the dive and I was down in 170, 175 feet for, I don't know, five or 10 minutes. And then coming back up and I wasn't clearing like I should. And I made my deco stops and you feel the gas squeak through your ears and squeak through your sinuses, but you still feel all the little pressure and stuff, you know, and it's like, yeah, it's going to be a little tough getting up, but you, you just come up a little slower and come up and, uh, I get up to, I think, my 10-foot stop, and uh, I have this huge relief of pressure over my sinuses, you know. You feel the slime go through your nose and into the hat, and it's like, oh, what a relief. It feels really good to get that out of there. And you know it's not going to be pretty, but you don't expect it to be too bad. And um, when I finally got up and out of the water, the guy that had the hat, he was tending me and helped me take off the hat. And, of course, he opened up the hat, and there's a gigantic boobager bottom of it was mucus and green oh and gosh. yellow boogers and a little bit of blood mixed in there you know oh, so gross. about made my friend sick <laughs> yeah he uh he almost puked he didn't but he almost did he felt like it and he looked at the hat and he goes yeah you're buying this hat i don't want this hat anymore you know <laughs> no way he's putting that back on his head that's why a lot of guys but, don't yeah, like to loan their hats out <laughs> between all the dip juices yeah, right. that might be in there <laughs> oh man oh yeah yeah, the guys that chew and just your hat. Yeah, massive you booger bomb just dribbling out. But that felt so good, though. Yeah, it, was, it felt so good to get that out of there. It was so big, it almost filled up the whole oral nasal. Oh, though. my gosh. What a clog. 
<laughs> oh yeah, it was big. It was big, gross, slimy. Yeah, it was gross. I'll tell you what, once you start hearing those little high pitched squeaks in your ears, <laughs> you know you're gonna have a tough time. <laughs> it's like, oh crap. Right. Yeah. So you start climbing the rope a little slower. Yeah. We've all felt that, you know, that's great. So yeah. Um, you probably should have said, Hey, sorry. Uh, I don't got the money. I, I, I'm not going to buy the hat. I kind (laughs) of did give him a hard time about that. I told him it didn't fit on my head that well. I wasn't sure I wanted it. You know, his, his eyes just got really big. I was like, dude, don't do this to me. You know, he didn't say that, but he could see it in his eyes. But I had oh, to give him a little great. bit of a hard time about it. It was kind of a different time back then diving too, though, compared to now. Um, let's talk a little bit about how like no one really wore bailout bottles and you were like one of the only ones <laughs> that wore them. Yeah, I used to get made fun of for wearing a bailout bottle, actually, especially on shallow dives. If the dives were less than 50 feet, you know, it's like, why strap this extra 40 pounds onto your back? You know, you can't fit around. It's harder to maneuver around and stuff. And it's like... You know, everybody has figured out, you know, if I, if anything happens, I'll just pop to the top. You know, nobody thinks about getting stuck on the bottom or, you know, I mean, any little thing can happen. And, you know, I think actually more, more divers probably die in shallow water than they do in deep water, really. Oh, I know. That's kind you of, know? that's, that's kind of a known thing now. It's like, that's the most dangerous depth right there. Like the 10 foot, you know, right. shallower, you know, oh, I don't need that right. bottle, you know. Yeah, but the regulations there weren't the laws and stuff. Even OSHA and you know, uh, you know, Army Corps of Engineers, all these guys that make all these regulations, they'd allow people to go diving on scuba, so you didn't have to even have communication to the stop. And then they did dumb stuff like if you go scuba diving, you got to be tethered. It's like being tethered on scuba is the dumbest thing you could ever do because now you got a line that can get stuck down there somewhere. If you're tethered, you you know you can get trapped easier on the bottom than if you're not tethered. The whole point of scuba is not to have any lines on you, you know? Yeah. So it was just, yeah, it was silly, you know? And we actually started working for some of the dam companies and some of the uh, irrigation companies because they lost scuba divers, you know? Scuba divers would go work for them and get killed, and it's like, we got to do something different, you know? And But that was in the late 70s and the up the mid-80s, up to the late 80s. They were still, you know... I mean, that's how we got to work with Montana Power Company is because they just had a guy die at Madison Dam and they didn't want to do that anymore. It's like, nope, we're only using surface supplied from now on. Man, that is so weird. But there weren't regulations on it. Yeah. <clears throat> Partly because uh, I had a similar experience. Uh, I was working for a company that had a contract on the California Aqueduct. And there's a, oh, yeah. there's, there's a spill. Uh, uh, it's like a dam, but it's like one of those spillway controlled you know, pumps, sure. it's a pump station. So they ended up losing two divers on a pump station on a trash rack. They got sucked right into the trash rack on scuba. Yeah. The guy up on top didn't know nothing right. about diving and waited for like 20 minutes until he contacted somebody, you know, and it's like after that, they used commercial divers. You know, they got private contractors out there yeah. to do it right on hard hat, you know, surf supplied air. So it takes, it's so right. weird how. That sounds like it's something that's been happening to a lot of these, you know, agencies and they just don't learn from each other. Yeah. They don't, they don't talk to each other. You know, it's like they're, you know, they don't talk to each other until they have a problem, but it's, you know, they don't tell each other about it because yeah, it happened in your Montana power company lost some scuba divers. There's an aqueduct system in Washington state that lost two scuba divers and then, they had the rescue divers went in. This was years ago. I can't remember the year, but you could find it probably if you looked it up on the internet. 
Um, two scuba divers went in to clear an aqueduct, you know, a venturi in Washington State, and then the um, sheriff's divers went in because they never came out, and they ended up losing three or four of the sheriff's divers because they all went in on scuba. You know, and then the dumb thing is they decided, well, we have to clear it out. So they drained it, which they could have done in the first place. They could right. have drained it and cleared it out in the dry in the first place. And it's like, it, it kills me. And I state this in my book several times that if you can do the job without using a diver, don't use a diver. Why put people in danger when you don't need to? You know, if it can be done in the dry, do it in the dry. Yeah. And you're not going to win Just any friends in the dive community with that. You know. No, you don't. You know, and you I also said that in your book too. Yeah, yeah, I you know, had divers, many divers, get angry at me, and I got kicked off jobs for saying that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. But in the long run, it saves money, it saves time, and realistically, the job gets done better. I mean, we, the only reason you use a diver is because there's no other way to do it. Yeah, you know. And then, uh, so you worked a lot with Canadians because of where you were at, right? Like this book yeah, is littered uh, the with Canadians. That, are, are you Canadian, Sam? Are you a secret Canadian? I'm not, no. Uh, <laughs> no, I was born in Moscow, Idaho. No, I'm American. But um, oceaneering, used, you know, used to own, had offices all over the world back in the 60s and 70s. And then in the mid-80s, the... Um, OPEC dropped their oil prices and put all kinds of dive companies out of business, especially in the Gulf of Mexico. And Oceaneering, to cut their losses, started selling off all their companies. And one of the companies, they, so they sold their offices in Canada to CanDive. And that's how I started working in the Northwest because Can Oceaneering used to do all their Northwest diving through CanDive, you know, through their Vancouver, British Columbia office. And that's just happened to be being in Spokane. It was close to there. And, you know, I just happened to start working with them. Just, you know, so that's how and they, I got a lot of Canadians would come down even after the American, you know, we started an American company. We just, you know, the, the owner of the company knew all these, knew all these um, divers. That looks like Chad. What's going on, Sammy Sunshine? Hey, not much. How you doing, Chad? Had a special <laughs> guest pop in. Sam, yeah, I hope nice you don't mind. Him. I haven't seen him in a while. <laughs> no, it's good. Yeah. Chad and I have done a lot of work together. It's great. Have a Chad Kaysen that just popped into uh to the studio, our virtual studio. So uh, glad I was able to jump in too. We're talking about uh about Sam's book Wet Pay, which I just finished today because I'm a procrastinator. Sorry, Sam. No, that's okay. I think I read two hundred pages. Today. Uh, but that's some why it's friends fresh. of mine that promised to buy it. Yeah, and some of my friends that promised to buy it, they haven't even bought it yet. So. Yeah. Well, that tells you how much work we have as a public service diver. <laughs> I can read 200 pages. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, yeah. So, yeah. Um, Canadians. It's not Mexicans that are coming down stealing jobs. It's Canadians that are coming down. Evidently, they're stealing all the dive work. I, yeah, especially in was Alaska. Was that a thing up they there? They were working a lot more. Um, in Alaska, it was because, like I say, Oceaneering was one of the big companies. And when they sold off, they, you know, sold off and had can dive. And that's who did the diving in Washington and Alaska and, you know, or in some of the Oregon coast and stuff like that. It was, that's just who did it. There weren't, you know, back in the 80s, there, there was a couple other dive companies, but, you know, they were doing mostly, you know, like stuff around Puget Sound. They weren't really going after any big jobs. So it was kind of a necessity thing at the time. I, I mean, as far as the number yeah. of divers and stuff that were there. 
But uh, I just oh, found yeah. it kind of funny, you know, the amount of uh, Canadian divers that, that were coming down to work, you know. And I'm Mexican, so yeah. I gotta say something. <laughs> but yeah. uh, but yeah, so a lot of a uh, lot of Canadian American dive relationships. You uh, you worked uh, quite a bit with uh, some of these companies that that had you know engineers that would come across, and and you do jobs uh, with like half Canadian crews and stuff. How hard was that to work in a mixed crew? Sometimes you do describe some of this in your book, so. Yeah, so it, it, it depends mostly on the people because the Canadians are just like Americans. I mean, you know, people are people all over the world. So it's, it's, you know, some of them are really good to work with and then some of them have the attitude that they're better than everybody else, you know, but that didn't, it wasn't because they were Canadian. It's just who they were as people. And so, you know, it didn't really matter who was on the crew as long as they were hardworking and, you know, were safe and, you know, were all about, you know, diver safety and stuff like that. It was good. Yeah, I just kind of wanted to get a feel for like the relationship back then between uh between the divers, you know, because now it's a little bit more territorial, you know, it's a little bit more yeah. cutthroat, I'm sure, than when you started. I mean, given there was some well, cutthroat you know, to certain it, areas. Right? Yeah, certain areas were kind of like Alaska is like if you weren't from Alaska, you weren't, you know, an Alaskan, none of the Alaskan companies wanted to hire you. So you either had to be, you know, you had to be Alaskan or maybe British Columbian, you know, because quite a few British Columbians worked there. You had to be, you know, north of the 49th parallel, basically, to work up there. And Northern California, you know, their union was really hard to get into. They're really, they were really territorial. If you weren't mm -hmm. from Northern California, they didn't want you to have anything to do with their union. But Washington, you know, I mean, they had the big Seattle thing wasn't, you know, they'd take whoever just because there wasn't that many divers. It's like here, you know, I started my career mostly in Spokane. There, There's not even enough divers. And when I started, there was like barely enough to have a dive crew that, you know, I mean, we, you know, we had to pull divers from wherever we could get them. It's not like to do work in Idaho, Montana. Yeah. So... So let's see, uh, I'm going, I'm, I'm thumbing through your book as well. I made some really good notes too. So okay. you should be proud of me, Chad, if you're <laughs> sitting there listening. Yeah, good. You know, there's, there's one thing about Sam that, uh, that transcends like the entire diving industry. And I, you always, you always remember like characters and, uh, you know, you, you, you tend to remember everybody's, everybody's shenanigans and like flaws in the diving industry. But Sam's like one of those few guys kind of like, you know, like these Dave Gill types, like everybody remembers Sam for, for what a great person he was. Like that's, that's <laughs> far between in the, in the industry. Like, it, you know, Sam's a, Sam's a, a genuinely liked guy, no matter, no matter where he's been at. It's, it's pretty uncanny. <laughs> and you know what? Well, thanks, Chad. I appreciate that. Love you, man. Those are the people that you want on your crew, you know, people like Sam, where it's like you're instantly, you know, no, he's looking out for you. He's not an a-hole, you know, I mean, he can be, I'm sure if he has to be, but for the most part, you know, just a well going, you know, nice, nice guy that does hard work, you know, and that's kind of all you can ask for in a crew to tell you the truth, you know, leave all the prima donna bull crap at the door. And after reading the book, that's not who you are. Yeah, no, I'm not a prima donna at all, you know. And I always figured the best way to get a job done is you want to surround yourself with good, capable divers. You know, I, I'm one of those guys that's like, okay, I want this guy, my, even if he's better, even if, he, even if I don't get along with him, if he does the job good and he's a good, safe diver, I want him on my crew. 
you know, we can put the, you know, our personalities aside if we have to, you know. Nice. I wanted to touch on one story here. Uh, this is a uh, closer towards the, uh, the middle of the book. So you got into some trouble and you didn't have a knife on you several times. You didn't have a knife on you. Oh, that one. You might, you mind telling us that story? Yeah. And I, and I'm yeah, not giving sure. away all the stories in the book, people that, that are listening here. There's plenty more stories. The booger bomb was a great one, but there's other ones that are great too. <laughs> Uh, let's hear the no knife story. Okay, the no knife story is every diver knows that you have a knife, at least one knife with you when you go down. Usually two because it's not uncommon to lose your knife. And, you know, a, a good diver usually checks all of his equipment before he goes in and straps it on. And for some reason, it was a nice sunny day, you know. I mean, where is a little job on the Spokane, or uh, yeah, it's on the Spokane River, Nine Mile Falls Dam. And, uh, you know, I, I, as routinely, it's just my custom that when I put my dive gear away, I clip everything onto it so it's all ready to go. So I don't even have to look at it, shouldn't have to look at it, and I'm ready to go. Well, you know, for some reason, I didn't check out my equipment when I threw it in. And, you know, I usually have two knives clipped onto my bailout bottle. I didn't and uh, jumped in the water. And also, it was a new uh umbilical that we were using so we hadn't worked all the like lengths and stuff out of it and the pneumo hose was probably about two and a half or three foot longer than it needed to be on this certain umbilical and we are jumped on the uh, spill gates to seal leaks and uh, it wasn't deep i think the deepest it was like about 20 feet deep of the deepest and anyway you know it doesn't take much a couple feet and the water's gonna suck whatever it can and anyway uh my pneuma hose slipped out from, you know, I had it tied around my bailout, but it, you know, came undone and stuff and got sucked into the gap without me realizing it. And as I was sealing the leaks, I used a pretty good size piece of wood to seal the major part of the leak, which happened to entrap the pneuma hose into the side of the gate and the dam there. And uh, I think I only had like a foot, maybe a foot and a half of, uh, slack so i couldn't really go up or down i couldn't go up to the surface to tell them i needed anything you know grab a knife or whatever and uh i was stuck and i kind of had to like eat a little crow and cry on the radio and tell the superintendent or the you know supervisor that hey i needed help i did something stupid i don't have a knife you know and so they lowered it down to me and i cut the pneumo off and yeah they gave me a bad time but they still give me a bad time about it and that was, you know, years ago, probably 20 years ago. So. Mm-hmm. But that has got to be the worst, though, yeah. as, as a diver to have to ask for something right, that should have been on your person going in. Right. You know, like, hey, oh, yeah. sorry, guys, forgot my weight belt. <laughs> yeah, That's probably the absolute yeah, worst. It's the same sort of thing. You know, but uh, <clears throat> no, yeah. it's uh, like we're all human. It happens. Unfortunately, it happened during a situation that could have been kind of hairy, you know. It could have been, yeah, but yeah, I, you know, working with a good crew again, mm-hmm. and like, other than giving me a hard time, they were taking care of me. So, so a lot of the stuff you describe in your book, you know, it, it's a lot of work on dams, a uh, lot, lot of stuff dealing with a delta P differential pressure, and uh, that was something that was, you know, it's still a killer nowadays. But I'm sure back then it was a, you know, killed a lot more, you know. But uh, yeah. Can, can you describe well, you know, your training? Back then, yeah, the, they didn't have the regulations. Yeah, yeah, no training. I mean, all the dive schools train you to work in the Gulf. They don't train you to work on no. the dams. They don't do inland training. 
because it's like, who does inland divers? I asked scuba diver stuff, you know, back then when I went to school. And it, I, you know, it's probably still that way. The majority of the diving training, I think, is aimed towards, you know, ship husbandry and oil rig stuff, you know. It's like, you know, and they touch on sad a little bit. But, yeah, nobody teaches you about dam diving, you know, or diving in irrigation pipes or any of that kind of stuff. So, yeah, the, and the Delta P. And like you said, you know, it, it doesn't take much. You get down below 10 feet and, and it's a killer. You know, and people don't look for it. And then another problem is all these dams are old. They're decaying. The concrete crumbles away, you know. Uh, lots of stuff happens. So there's lots of lots of leaks all over the place that aren't in the blueprints, you know. And then blueprints get changed. So old intakes and stuff like that don't make it to the new blueprints, you know. So there's a lot of a lot of information out there that's not out there, that's not available to the guys in the water. So you really do need to be really careful diving on that kind of stuff. Yeah, no, we're we're trying to fight the good fight and trying to you know get some changes made in uh, power generating facilities and and, and uh, dams and those types of structures. You know, because uh, like you said, they don't update a lot of these prints that they give the super that they give the super uh, intendants and supervisors and stuff, and they just figure we've been doing it this way for years. You know, until exactly until they kill somebody. You know, which we had unfortunate right. uh, you know, deaths last year with this stuff, you know? Oh, really? Yeah. But, uh, the cool thing about your book and the reason why I'm really pushing it and I feel it's important is because you're describing techniques here. You're describing things like, you know, to look out for, you're describing how to do certain procedures underwater. You know, it's almost like a diver manual for working in Delta P situations for working on (laughs) dam structures, I mean, like I'm reading this stuff and I'm shaking my head. Yep. That's, that's how you do it. That's what I did. You know, this and that. But it's like, I'm also thinking the entry level guy would love this because they've got the secret, you know, blueprints here, you know, to learn how to, how to dive in these types of conditions and stuff, you know? <laughs> so I'm just saying, you know, if you're a younger, you know, cat listen to the show, uh, check out the book, pick it up. You're going to learn a lot from Sam. I mean, even if he's not there with you on the job site, you're still going to learn a lot from what he's writing right now that's what i found amazing you wrote in a style to where it was easily digestible i was entertained but also you know learned something which is amazing you you were going for yeah, being a teacher great. right yeah. sam i mean that that must come naturally. no right? not at all i was basically just well well yeah i actually i did i, mean, I, I do actually I had my teaching certification in Washington when I got my, you know, I went through a college to get that. But no, well, that wasn't the point. It wasn't to teach anybody. It's just dealing, you know, it's like this, you get a new guy on the job and these are the issues I ran into, you know, and I don't know. It's just, it was naturally part of the story from my point of view. Nice. Well, let's get away from, you know, morbid Delta P talk and all that stuff. Um, (laughs) Going to jump ahead a little bit. You did a lot of bridge inspections. And uh, again, with similar background, I'm shaking my head. Yup, I remember you know doing all that stuff and dealing with those representatives with the DOT and this and that. And there was one story in particular that I wanted to ask you about. We're not going to tell the story because I really want people to read the story. But uh, I'm just going to ask you: okay. They had a character in there called Boston. Um, did you ever find out why yeah. he came out of the truck shooting a gun? No, I never did. I think, you know, I look back on it, he just had to blow off some steam. You know, that's as much as I can figure. We never really talked about it. 
and it was never brought up ever again between the two people involved. No, well, that guy, the you know, the guy that got scared, he um, he didn't want to work with our crew. And actually, I don't think he worked for our company after that anymore. So yeah, it was never an issue. It never came up. Oh wow! All right. Well, you guys kind of Boston read. and I, we didn't, we never talked about it. That is too funny. <laughs> Just never, never talked about it. You yeah. never asked him, like, hey, uh, so. Why did you almost kill that guy? No, That's not what no. happened. That's not we what happened. I'm just saying, together. read the book. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no. We never talked about it. We never felt the need to talk about it. Boston and I worked enough together that, you know, we had a lot of nonverbal communication. And it's like, if everything's okay, everything's okay. So, yeah, no, no point in talking about it, you know. All right. Well, on that, we're going to go I ahead and pause. Did. We're going to go ahead and pause for a quick commercial break and uh, definitely uh, want to hear some more about the book and maybe some stories that didn't make it into the book. How about that? <laughs> All right. Sounds good. All right. We'll be right back. This is Bobby DeLise of the New Orleans-based maritime law firm DeLise & Hall. For over 40 years, DeLise & Hall has represented professional divers working offshore, in inland waters, or anywhere across the globe. This is what I know. All divers and their families should develop a relationship with an experienced diving attorney before an emergency occurs so that if that emergency does occur, the diver's attorney is there to assist them in their time of need. Consider me and my partners, Alton Hall and Jeanette DeLise, as your bailout bottle. Pray that you will never need to engage us, but should an emergency occur, we're standing by to assist you and your family. Here's something else I know. Diving contractors, dive gear manufacturers, third parties, and their insurance companies have the money to have their attorneys on call. Why shouldn't the diver and his loved ones also have an attorney in their gear bag before they leave home? Want to learn how Delise and Hall will be there should you need us? Give us a call at 1-800-DIVER-55 or call me on my cell at 504 504- Four six zero six two zero zero. That's one eight hundred diver five five and five zero four four six zero six two zero zero. Visit us at our website www.divelawyer.com or the Delison Hall Facebook page. This is Bobby Delise signing off. We're Delison Hall, the divers' attorneys, and remember, not all sharks swim in the sea. Thanks and dive safe. Just, you know, they have these stories in me and I wanted to get them out, you know? Yeah. And, and it's and, like, uh, I don't, I don't have any skeletons in my closet and I don't believe in keeping skeletons in your closet. It's like, let everybody hear the, you know, the dirt and the mud. It's like, whatever it is, what it is. We're all human beings. Yep. Perfect. You could, couldn't have said it better. You know, a lot of divers like to drink too. We were just talking right now about, a. About about an absinthe. You shared some stories about absinthe here with, with Chad. I thought it was hilarious. You know. Yeah. Um what what was uh your liquor of choice was rum, is that correct? Is it still rum? Rum. You said yeah. it's now absinthe. It's still Yeah, it's still rum. It's rum and absinthe. They're probably like, you know, they're the top two. All right. Now, I like tequila though. Yeah, and, makes, and I like vodka. Makes your clothes fall off, huh? And Everclear. <laughs> Everclear. Jesus, Sam. <laughs> Come on. Well, you know. 
if you're going to drink, you drink. It's like my philosophy. And I kind of, you know, my agreed with my dive instructor, you know, Murray Stalbert, that, you know, the only thing you mix the alcohol with is other alcohol. <laughs> so, you know, real men don't put pop in their drinks. Damn. I guess I'm not a real man. I use ginger ale sometimes. <laughs> Yeah, ginger. Well, you know, a couple of them are okay. Like one of the best drinks I've ever had is Mountain Dew and Captain Morgan Spiced Rum. Tastes exactly like those butterscotch candies. It doesn't sound good, Chad, but it tastes, if you like those little like Brock's butterscotch candies, it tastes exactly like that. It's That's a liquid so form. It's, they're delicious. It's weird, but it's, it's really good. I've, I've got to, I've got to try that. I think that. That's a disclaimer on on Sam because I think I watched him only drink Mountain Dew. The only pop I ever drank, maybe. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody on the whole bar was drinking Mountain Dew because I had four stacks of LST shack. I think I had a case up there every day, right? That's a lot of Mountain Dew. How, I used to drink at least a case working? a day, and I drank a lot. Oh my of it. god! Nice. That's what kept me going. I guess that's. No I didn't drink coffee though. Monsters and all that stuff, huh? Yeah. Yeah. I like the Loco Moco or Moco Loco monsters. Those are pretty good. Yeah. But yeah, I never drank coffee or anything. Mountain Dew is what I drank instead. So yeah, I guess it equals out. I I guess. The, uh, yeah, I think so. So I speaking of drinking, like there's a point that I'm getting at here. We're not just talking about drinking. Um, you mentioned in the book, which I thought was great because I think it's kind of a dying, you know, tradition. Um, it's buying beer for the crew or liquor for the crew. If you go in the drink by accident. Oh yeah. I don't know that that happens much anymore, but it used to be, I mean, that's how it was. If you went in the drink by accident, yeah, you owed the crew a bottle of booze. And like I say, it was rum, you know. I mean, lots of guys like whiskey, but I'm not a whiskey guy. Right. It's a thing. I I don't know when it stopped becoming a thing. Like, I had recently said that, like, a while, you know, not too long ago. And they looked at me all weird and like, what? Really? That's what? Like, no, dude. (laughs) You go in the drink. You're buying some beers for the guys. Everybody knew it. Yeah. Oh, well. All right. (laughs) <laughs> I'm sorry. I just had to bring that up for you younger listeners out there. You go in the drink, yeah, you better bring good. some beer, you know? Right. I've had yeah. to buy my fair share, you know, cause you're hustling on deck. It's going to happen. It's funny when it happens. Right. You know, it, yeah. it just adds you know, to the fun. Yeah, you gotta have fun. Yeah. Gotta have fun on the crew. You can't be yep. that stick in the mud guy. No. Yeah, it's hard work, and so yeah, you gotta you gotta have a good attitude and have you know have fun while you're doing it. Otherwise, yeah, it just doesn't work. So throughout the book, you talk a lot about Norwesco. You worked for them for quite a bit. How long did you work for those guys? Well, okay, Norwesco they changed their name, right? Because yeah. it, it started out. I worked for them actually for that group. Um, right out of dive school, basically, because that was it was can dive, and then mm-hmm. it, you know can dive, you know oceaneering sold can dive or sold their Vancouver office, and so it changed into can dive, and then can dive, you know, had their issues, which I go into a little bit in the book, not much, and uh, so ended up not being able to get the work in um, in America, so we became 
United Marine Divers and then morphed into United Marine Services. And then, you know, the guy that was running the office ended up buying out the company and changed the name to Norwesco. So I worked with that group basically from 1986 to 2000, 2001. Same group of guys, you know, but like the company just went through some name changes basically. So that's why I talk about them. Like it was my major employer, but I usually worked for one or two, I think up to seven. One one year I worked for seven different companies, you know, and that's just what you do as a union diver. You know, you're not, you can't be loyal to one company because one company usually, you know, can't keep, they can keep like maybe one crew working or back then it's different now, but back then you were lucky if they could keep one crew working full time. So if you wanted to be a diver, you know, almost full time, you had to work for different companies. But, you know, I like had a home, you know, which was like my home company, which was the that group up until like 2001 or so. So, yeah, most, you know, 50 percent a year I'm working for them. And then I work for other companies when they didn't have work or whatever. I used to get in arguments with the boss and he'd fire me and I'd quit. You know, we went through that several times. But then you always go back and work for him. Yeah. And, you know, when I tell the guys that it's like, look, man, don't burn bridges. You can have disagreements and stuff. And I tell you what, they'll call you back <laughs> when it gets busy. It gets yeah, busy. They'll, they'll call you back, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Don't be married. Um, one of the yeah. things that stood out though, um, in your book, when you were talking about Norwesco was, a. Uh, if you guys have the book and want to take a look at it again, it's, it's, it's like in the middle of the book, they were stealing your guys' per diem. I yeah, mean, that, I think all dive feel, companies do that. Yeah. How how'd you feel when you found out? Because well, it pissed me off. That was one of my major office. things. Yeah. You know? yeah. You know, you find out that the when you learn that whenever a company is doing a job for the for the government, any government, they have to pay the government implemented per diem, and per diem's not part of the wage. And that's how, you know, the, and so basically the companies use that to like up their profits a little bit because like the union and I'll say, okay, per diem's $40 a day. And then, the, you know, the government, the IRS wage that the government company has to pay, you know, is $80 a day or 120, whatever it happens to be, you know, it, you know, bigger cities, more expensive places, it's more. And because the union says, well, you only have to get $40, that's all you get. So Basically, that's, I mean, how else can you look at it? The government, you know, I mean, the company's taking the money that the government says you're supposed to be getting for per diem. So they're stealing it. I mean, you can't look at it any other way. It pissed me off, you know, and I ended up quitting or getting fired from, you know, a couple jobs because of that kind of stuff. But Yeah, because you don't want to have to pay to go to work. Right, exactly. If you have to pay to go to work, there's no point in working, Mm -hmm. you know. Yeah, just when I read that portion of the book, that that irked me a lot, and it was like, "Holy cow, man! That that sucks." These guys are out there working hard, and uh, everyone else is getting. That's the thing that killed me is that everybody else was getting it. It's not one of those things where it's like, "Yeah, you know," it was just the one company. It was like everyone else was getting the proper pay, except for you guys, you three on on the whole job site. It was so weird. Yeah, that's because we were working for a different company. Yeah. But anyhow, uh, you know, there's stories like that littered throughout the book, you know, some disagreements that you had with Norwesco and you still went back and, and, and worked, you know, when, when you had to. And, uh, 
there was, it wasn't like you burned the bridge, but you definitely let your feelings known. Um, what's the fine line there? Like, how do you go about sticking to your guns and uh, kind of voicing what's right and wrong? Because there's some other stories you've described in your book to where you got thrown off a job because you wouldn't, you know, run certain tables. You know, we're, we're not going to go into it. I want you guys to read the book. But Sam literally got thrown off a job because he was being too safe after a guy had already gotten messed up. So, yeah, the fine line is, you know, you have like it's uh, you, you have to be honest with yourself and honest with the people you work with. And the even, the you know, the owners of the dive companies and the superintendents and stuff, if you're honest with them all the time, you're going to have your disagreements. And there's a line. It's like, OK, this is my line. I don't cross it no matter what. And they'll respect you for that. They may not want you on the job at the point at that time because you're costing them too much money, your attitude's costing them too much money or whatever the deal is. But, you know, it's like they still, I think they'll respect you as a person. And so when, you know, another job come or, you know, a different working situation, whatever, it's like when they have work for you, they'll work you. And the same deal, you know, as long as, you know, you vent to, you know, and uh, yeah, you have respect for every. It comes down to respect, I think, if you respect each other, even though you don't think they're doing the right thing or they don't think you're doing the right thing, whatever. If you respect them as a person, you can still work for them. Because there's going to be some guys that you don't like on the crew. You, you, for some reason you don't get along, you know, and that's going to happen, you know, but at the end of the day, it's like, I want that guy, you know, everybody's. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm saying though, at the end of the day though, that guy's good. You know, you want him watching your back. You want him as your standby diver or your supervisor, you know, because he knows what he's doing, you know, and that's a, right. That's again, that's what I'm talking about. The fine line type of thing. There's definitely a fine line, you know? So I wanted to, uh, again, switch gears and, uh, talk a little bit about uh, another story that I want you to, to, uh, kind of expand on a little bit. This was a, an oil spill job that you had gone on. Um, and it also involved some Coors uh, beverages. Uh-huh. Yeah, that was a, more that was on a, that story. Up being a really fun job. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that one uh, that was probably my second or third oil spill that involved a train. Basically, a train running, you know, on the tracks through Montana in the summer, and the the heat, you know, expands the tracks, so the train wipes out, you know, derails. And dumps a bunch of oil into the, because they have oil tankers, you know, so the oil spills into the creek. So EPA says that has to come out. So they send, you know, a dive company or whoever they can to get out there. All this one train happened to have a bunch of train cars full of Coors beer right next to the oil cars. So when the oil cars got dumped, the cars with the Coors beer got dumped right into the river and, the stuff floats for a little while, but not too long. It sinks down to the bottom of the river. So when you go down there looking for the oil spill and you find cases of beer, as a diver who likes to drink, well, it's like you're going to spend a little extra time pulling some, you know, salvaging some beer. <laughs> was so that's that what we did. We didn't salvage? waste any time on the job. <laughs> oh, yeah, man. it's a beer salvage, alcohol salvage, you know, it's good spirits. And on that job, you know, I mean, and all of us, we, the crew, we'd been working together for a while. Boston was on that job too. I think he was actually running that job. And uh, so, yeah, we decided, okay, we'll do our work, you know, for 
the company, you know, for the eight hour days that we're doing in water for them. And then when we sign off for them, it's like, well, we just, you know, we'll pay for the gas for the compressors, which it doesn't take much. And you just go in there and spend an extra half hour, an hour salvaging as much cases of beer as you can, you know, and I don't know. I think we were there a week and a half or whatever, and we probably salvaged six or seven pickup truck beds full of beer. Oh, wow. Maybe more, maybe 10. That is it a was lot a lot. Beer. And you guys shared well, it with you the know, town. It's like there was a, we shared it with the town, yeah. We And, uh, yeah, we were the heroes for a couple of weeks. Yeah. That's amazing. That's the first time I've ever heard of a beer salvage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was it was a good job. The river was clean, you know, water is clean, so you could see, you know, all over the place. So it's, it was easy to find the stuff. And you can't just let it go down there and waste away. No, you can't, and it's fine because it's sealed. You know, it's not like oil seeped into it. Yeah, right. No, and it's fresh water. I mean, it's a clean river. It's the Clark Fork River, which is a really clean river in Montana. So basically, the bottles and cans are getting washed anyway. So yeah, except for yeah, full no. of oil, but. You know. Well, the oil, though, is, you know, it's crude oil, so it's really blobby. Oh, it's not okay, like right. the oil you put in yeah. your car, you know, especially when it hits the cold water. It's more like tar. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've stepped in plenty of tar as a youth in Long Beach. You know, the beaches was littered with yeah. blobs of tar. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So we asked the exact same stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it just sticks to you. Really hard to get off. Oh, it sticks to everything. It's horrible. But yeah, uh, that was one of the 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 best stories there. You know, the the beer salvage that was pretty cool. <laughs> and then uh, afterwards, uh, that was kind of a later towards the end of the book there, the the beer salvage stuff. And then now we're getting into more of the the uh, later '90s. So again, like we said before, you span from the beginning, and then we go up until like the 2000 ish period. Around, uh, uh, I'm gonna touch on. See, I, I hate doing the show sometimes because then you're going to something fun and then now it's like we're going to go into something a little bit not fun, you know. Um, well, that's but diving that, though, isn't that it? Is. That totally is, you know. It's a, it's a tough trade yeah. for a reason, you know. You got these insane highs and it then is. you got these insane lows, you know. Yeah. But uh, um, around this time, you had uh, Norwesco had uh, an accident in a deer Island. And, uh, what job were you currently on when all that stuff went down? Um, actually I was working at that time. I, um, I was having a rough time with Norwesco and I was trying to get away from them. So I was actually working for, um, a company called SAIC Maripro and we were working down on the Gulf of Mexico. I was working on a project called Fiberweb, putting, uh, putting, uh, fiber optic cable down between the rigs and to the beach. And, and I was still, like I say, you work for several companies out of the year. Mm-hmm. And so that company, I mean, that year, I think I worked for three or four companies and uh, we knew this, you know, Deer Island job was coming up and it was going to be a big deal. It was supposed to be a long job and good money. And when we first heard about it, the, you know, we looked at it from our point of view, from the, you know, Washington state union scale, what it was going to be. And it's like, it was going to be a huge money job. So basically everybody wanted to go on that job, you know, when we first heard about it. Because yeah, um, then we just started getting into the specifics. Yeah, because it was a long tunnel. Um, so if long you guys... Tunnel, nine miles yeah, long, I think. Exactly. So we're thinking you go in a tunnel, that's penetration, right? It's penetration, exactly. 
and uh, it wasn't. So yeah, nine miles. Figure that yeah. nine miles at a you know fifty cents a foot or a dollar a foot or whatever you agree upon, right? Is what it should have been. Yeah. Yeah, no, seriously. I mean, we kind of talked about this off air too. It's like, that's the first thing that I thought when I, you know, heard of that. And I'm like, man, those guys must have gotten paid, you know, good bank because of penetration and stuff. And no, it wasn't the case. They were just getting, you know, paid hourly. So that's kind of what turned a lot. Right, not a penny of penetration. Yeah. And that just adds to the further, you know, grief to the story. We did an episode on the uh, Deer Island incident. We had uh, the author of that book that that wrote Trapped Under the Sea, Neil Swidey. So he came on, talked a little bit about it. But he's, you know, telling this as a reporter. You know, you weren't there, but, you know, you heard some things, you know, uh, secondhand. And you could have been on that job, but ultimately you didn't go on that job. And uh, it turned out to be a, a terrible, terrible job, you know. Yeah. Yeah, it didn't go on that job because we didn't like, uh, I didn't like you know, how the breathing apparatus was set up. And several of us talked about it, you know, about not wanting to do it. And even the guys that went on the job weren't super happy with how the setup was, but they figured, you know, that it had been looked at by the owner of the company, gone over by the engineer, blah, blah, blah. They figured it had to, you know, it was going to be as safe as it could be, I suppose. But then you look at it, it's like the miners and the, you know, and the sand hogs that were originally working on that project, didn't want to have anything to do with it. And they're the ones that put the tunnel in. If they didn't want to have anything to do with it, you know, something's not right, you know? And you so just thinking about it and stuff is like, yeah, no, better if I didn't go on it. And you mentioned earlier um, in this episode that you only use divers when you absolutely have to. Ultimately, they did this exactly. job without divers and they did it the right way by putting the uh, air system back in that tunnel. Correct. <clears throat> Which, yeah, they should have never pulled it out in the first place. You know, and yeah. uh, again, our hearts go out to you, Sam. You lost a good friend in that one. And, uh, you know, it's a it's, it's a tough thing, I'm sure, to lose a friend. You were going through some stuff in your life, too, you know, at that time, too, to, you know, to throw salt and wounds and everything, you know. And how, how do you stay in the right headspace and still work? Uh, you know, you get support from your friends, support from your family. You know, and you you just have to take a deep breath, you know, and and just try and decide what's worth, you know, what's, you know, decide what you want to do. Is diving still what you really want to do? And, and it was so ingrained in me that, yeah, I want to do it. And so, yeah, just a lot of support from family and friends, you know, and keeping each other's back. And it's like, and you learn from the experience. It's like, look, this, this happened and it shouldn't have happened. This is why. And it's like, that incident, it'll never happen again, you know, because we'll make a point of, you know, letting our buds and people know that that's not how a job's done, you know, and if something's not right, speak up for it. You know, it's like now, you know, you go on jobs, they have all this, you know, what do they call it? I can't remember now, but everybody has a right to stop the job, right? Yeah, I mean, they're huge on that, right, yeah. Chad? <clears throat> Yeah, stop work authority. Everybody says, this isn't right. I have an issue with it. We'll stop about it. And everybody talks about it. That that didn't exist back then. It's like, if you said that, it's like, yeah, stop this job. I don't feel good. Fine, you're off the job. You know, we'll find you don't want to do it. We'll get somebody else out here who will do it. And, you know, the safety, they figure it's like all that. It's been gone through. The office has gone through it. The engineers have gone through it. It's safe. You know, and you're just a worker. You're just, you know, a tender, a 
whatever you are, you know, don't worry about it. You're safe enough because we say you're safe enough. You know, and, and it was just a different attitude back then. But, you know, it's like, and then, but there were some of us that, you know, would stand up and like, fine, you know, I, I don't agree with that. I'm not going on the job, you know, and I was comfortable with that. Some guys weren't, you know, it's like, well, you know, I'm not comfortable with it, but everybody else says it's safe and they're going on it. So it must be OK. You know, basically, you just got to stand up for yourself and you can stand up for your friends and your coworkers that feel the same way you do, you know. Yeah. And then again, it goes with the saying, right? There's a there's old divers and there's bold divers, but there's not any uh, bold old divers. There's right? no old bold old divers. divers yeah. Yep, exactly. Yeah. There's a lot of uh, good sayings in your book, you know, and I really hope a lot of people uh, pick it up, you know, give it a read. And uh, it's definitely something that you can learn from. Like I said before, you know, it's really good conversational uh, voice of your writing. So it's not a hard book to read like some of the other, you know, dive books you might read that are that might be a little drier, you know, but uh, yeah, yeah, I definitely enjoyed it. Thanks. Yeah, I wanted it to be, you know, entertaining more or less like, you know, a couple guys, you know, friends, families sitting around having a drink, telling dive stories. Mm-hmm. That's basically how I kind of wanted to write the, write the book. And, and I wanted, you know, people that don't know that much about diving, I try to explain what's going on and what we're actually dealing with, you know, in depth to a point where they could have, you know, get, get a handle on what we're dealing with. But then I didn't want to get so technical that it got boring, which... I think I might have gone overboard a couple times, but you know, I get carried away. That's <laughs> yeah, all right. It's that's all right probably you know, more of the yeah, more of the teacher in me kind of you know it's like how to do that, I guess. But well, I tell you what, I can't wait for the uh, the second part. Is the second part called drying out? Is that the name of the book? Or I, right now, yeah, it's called drying out because um, in this, in most of it's going to be you know I be turned into a superintendent or a supervisor, you know, did a lot, a lot of more drier, you know, I was on top side a lot more in the second half of the book. So it's, you know, I mean, I still dive a little, still dove a little and those stories will be in there, but I also got into tunneling, which tunneling, you know, hyperbaric tunneling, there's no water or sometimes there's no water. So it's dry, even though it's, you know, like sat diving or like, you know, surface supplied air, there's no water. It's, you know, hyperbaric, but no water. So it's dry. So, yeah, because this, you know, that part of my career is a lot drier than the first part of my career. I call it drying out. And hopefully that'll be out by midsummer, but it'll be out by next Thanksgiving at the very latest. Nice. Is there anyone? It's about halfway done right now. Is there anybody that you'd like to uh, thank in helping you get the book? Well, I'd like to thank, yeah, basically, you know, like I have to thank my wife because she's like, you know, super supportive and stuff like that. And thank my family and thank my friends, you know, and, you know, all the guys that I worked with, all the guys that kept me alive, you know, like Chad and everybody. And and I really appreciate you taking the time to do this pod, you know, it's get the word out, you know, maybe some of the people that haven't heard about it or don't know anything about me, you know, as I appreciate you taking the time to talk about this book. Well, like I said before, this podcast is for the commercial diver. So, you know, it's, it's a show for us, you know, that's why we got to have, uh, have you on and any other diver that, you know, has, has, uh, has something to share, you know, wants to talk. So you out there, that are listening, you got a story to share, you know, feel free to reach out and uh, give me a shout. Speaking of stories, we do have Chad here still, and, uh, we want to see if he's got a story about Sam or <laughs> Sam, if you got a story about Chad, let's hear a story that didn't make it in the book. 
Go ahead, Chad. I'll let, I'll let Sam <laughs> Oh, my God. First. It sounds like there's a ton. I, I, I can test the tide of how I can go with my story. <laughs> you can go with your story. I mean, there's nothing I'm ashamed of. You know, I mean, I did a lot of Chad I met down in the Gulf of Mexico. And uh, so there will be a, probably a couple Chad stories in the new book. Um <laughs> What's going to be his nickname of the book? You got to tell me off air because all these names they have I nicknames. Don't, I don't know yet. I know they come in nicknames. They kind of hit me on the spot, you know. So it's like, yeah, I don't know. It'll come to me when because I because you can't use their barge names because then everybody will know. You have to make up your own nicknames. Is that what you did, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So. There's a couple guys that had nicknames, and it's like I can't use his nickname because that's what everybody <laughs> called right. him. That's his name. And also everybody was now. I mean, everybody will know anyone. Anybody that's been involved in the stories, they yeah. know exactly who everybody is, which mm-hmm. is okay, you know. And uh, and I, I'm not trying to hide that. I just don't want the, you know, I mean, if a story gets out there that, that somebody doesn't want other people to know about, it's like their name's not in the book, so they shouldn't have anything to worry about, yeah. you know. Yeah, you can't sue me. I wasn't talking about you. I was talking about no nuts. Exactly. <laughs> Right, exactly. You know, and they have no nuts as a nickname I can't use because there was a couple guys that that's you know, right. I know. I mean, that was there's, a, there's a lot of nicknames out there you can't use. Yeah, exactly. Mm. You know, so all right. Yeah. Story, yeah. story Chad time. Is a good Let's have a drink. You, you know, Let's have a drink and do story time. Okay. Yeah. Oh, let's see. I don't know. Let's see. Let's see. Yeah, I was sat diving with you, Chad. Was the most part, and uh, he's always anxious to get in there and get. The problem with Chad was getting them back out of the water, because he'd go in the water and he'd want to stay in the water until the job was done. It's like your time's up; you need to come out of the water. And it's like I almost had sometimes we almost had to like pull on his umbilical to get him out of the water. You know, it's like because he would, you know, and then a lot of divers are that way. We want to get the job done. Yeah, and you got this in your head. I got to get this done. Right, exactly, you know, and, uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, and we worked with Chad in Denver. Do you remember that? The, that was uh, the Alton. In fact, I'm writing that story right now. But we were, we were working up in Denver. We were um, on uh, Cheeseman Dam, which was a sat job in Denver. I think the diving was what, around 190 feet or so, 200 feet, like that. But it was also at altitude. It was like 7,000 feet. So none of the gauges and, you know, I mean, all the all the uh, analyzers weren't reading properly for the altitude. So they're giving, you know, they were giving the wrong, uh, uh, the wrong numbers. You know, they'd say your air percent or O2 percentage is this when actually it was something different because of the altitude. And I'll go into that in my book a little bit, explain some of that one in there. But yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, it was a hard time getting Chad back in the bell and getting Chad back on the surface. That's the biggest thing I remember about Chad. Hard working. There's a couple other things, but I don't want to tell stories, you know, that people don't want to hear. Or Chad doesn't want to out there. <laughs> I got zero fear, man. I know, that's the truth. Yeah, that's the truth. And you wouldn't get work working. He'd get hurt on a job and he'd still work. He wouldn't tell anybody he hurt himself and he'd keep working. It's like, Chad. Stop. You got to go see the medic. <laughs> you gotta, you remember that? I, I'm not going to go into the story, but, you know, oh yeah. I think it was, I can't remember if it was on the bow or if it was on the crossmar. I think it was on the crossmar. Probably. We, we were on, we were on quite a few vessels and, and barges together. Yeah. And 
the I'd, I'd say the majority of the time that I was in set, uh, I was fortunate to have Sam as as our, our LSD, and there's people people really gloss over how good or how bad you can be at that job. Yeah, like it takes it takes it takes a real, I mean, a real professional and mathematician to to do that job well and you got to be you have to be a, a people person too you know all, all all you hear inside of the system is this guy on the on the mic you know and his yeah. demeanor can really stone for your entire shift your entire bell run maybe your even your even your whole sat run and that oh, was man. something that sammy was exceptional at uh, I tried like to make a, it nice. You guys a, weren't very comfortable in there. I tried to do the best I could, you know, trying to keep you guys uh, yeah, happy. He would, I mean, he would send us stuff in. I would, I would draw, uh, you know, borderline pornographic pictures to send out to <laughs> Sam. Or I still have one of those hanging on my wall. The one you did with the diver coming out with the mermaid still hanging on my wall. Yeah, <laughs> it's an awesome picture. But it would, I mean, you know, you you really. You really try to shove away like guys that bring you down, or like guys that can impact your mood in that in that kind of crummy environment. But when you have somebody like Sam, I mean, it makes your it makes your run that much better. Like you perform better, you're safer. You you have you have an, an immense amount of of trust built up when you have a guy sitting at the LST that cares about the people that are inside there. And that's that's probably the the you know the best aspect of being at sad is with uh, Sam at the, at the helm with the LST side. It's, it was really great. Thanks Chad. I had to take care of you. The other, the other story I would share is <laughs> you have to build them up first, tear them down. Right. <laughs> we were at some point, I think we were on, we were on the performance barge and we were in between like uh, project sites. And all of a sudden we were desat. And we had like this kind of skeleton crew to keep track of the barge and the dive equipment. And we came across, I think, one or two different sites where we where the the company man wanted us to dive on. But it was it was like me and Sam, I think Sagawa yeah. uh, was there. And we all ended up making up the dive crew. And uh, you know, we we were we were the boat was built really for sat, you know, for surface diving was was kind of secondary and uh, you know the but but they were so used to our guys and our company like getting stuff done and and really really performing well so i think i can't remember if we were swapping supervisor but sam went in the water and uh, we were we were doing some burning and we had sent the burning rig down and i was like sam burn out this it was you know it was like a piece of flat bar something we were just pulling debris off this down platform and Sam ripped the entire steel form off of this off of this thing that I think three guys before him were trying to burn on. And I was like, Sam, use the burning gear. He's like, nah, send me the rigging. I was like, the rigging? I was like, we've been burning on this all day. I'm not ready for the rigging. He goes, just send me the rigging. And he's rigging down. He rigs up the piece and the piece comes up. And I was like, how'd you get the piece out? He goes, I just ripped it off, ready to come up on it. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> While it would practically burn through, I knew the rigging would pull it right up. Right. <laughs> and besides that, the burning rig is like, for me, it was far enough away from the barge. You had to drag it there. It would have taken half my dive to get the burning rig over there and would have, you know, half killed me. <laughs> You know, it was, it was it was definitely of a it was definitely a, a scenario where uh, where the where the veteran uh, <laughs> diver mind prevailed and the and the young uh, the young bucks uh, had failed. <laughs> Tell you what, yeah. man, pull hard; it'll come easy every time. Every time, that's right. Yeah, that's right, and it worked. And it worked. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I remember that. That's great, yeah. man. I wish we could do this all night, but uh, definitely, uh, yeah. definitely want to have you back on, Sam. Once you get the new book out there, and we'll talk a little bit about that too. And uh, if uh, you're more than welcome to come on anytime as well, you know, definitely a treasure trove, right, great, treasure thanks. trove of knowledge that's going to help the next guy coming up. You know, there's only so much stuff yeah. I know. Well, I appreciate it. So I rely yeah. on guys like well, you, you know, and none Chad. Of us know everything. <laughs> yeah. None of us know everything. I mean, I even, you know, my last year in it, I'm still learning stuff. So, you know. And that's the beauty of this show. Things change. I think we have we're everyone all, on here yeah. to share information, you know. Yeah, it's great. It's awesome. Well, we're all the second best divers in the industry, yeah. right? Yeah, the second best is the one you want to be, right? There's, 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 always, there's always that guy out there that's the best. Yeah. Telling everybody. <laughs> right. We're all just the because we'll always run right. yeah. <laughs> well thanks a lot Sam Sam you look great buddy Sam you look great and I uh, love you pal love the book and I uh, can't wait for the next one man and uh, I'll be I'll be I'll be uh, stalking you on the Facebook buddy. all right thanks Chad yeah I, uh, I follow you there so yeah so yeah I guess I'm, yeah you take care of yourself Chad yeah, man. Thanks for having me on, man. It was great. Love the podcast. It's awesome. Keep it up, man. Divers need it. And you guys don't have to leave either. Yeah. So we're <laughs> we're just, we're just closing the show out. I'm gonna take off again, <laughs> okay. dinner, but if you guys can, uh, if you guys want to stick around, you can. Um, Sam, um, is it okay if you stay on or keep the phone on for a little bit because your part still needs to upload? Sure. So. When you close okay. the, when you close the app, it stops the upload. So you just have to keep it open until okay. you'll see next to your name a percentage that says uploaded. So once it's a hundred percent, then then you're good. Right now it's at twenty nine percent. So Oh yeah, that's not very much. Once we close it out, it'll upload faster. All right. Okay. So then you also you wanted me to let you know where you could buy my book? Yes. All right, perfect. Sorry about that. Okay, it's available on Amazon, on Amazon.com, and that's you can get it's paperback, um, ebook, and hardback on uh, Amazon.com. And then I also published it through a company called Ingram Sparks. So you can go to like, any bookstore, Barnes and Noble or whatever, and that version's only hardback. It's got a different cover, but it's the same book. So. It's at, you know, Barnes and Noble or any of your local bookstores can order it through that. Nice. And I'll definitely uh, be passing around my copy. I'm done with it. So anybody that knows me that wants to borrow it, I will let you borrow it. How about that? Because I got an awesome hardcover copy that Sam sent me that's been autographed. <laughs> so definitely keep that. For, I know. I know, Chad. I got an autographed copy. How awesome is that? 
I'm happy to autograph any of them. If you send me the book, I'll autograph it and send right. it back. All right, perfect. Or if I bump into you at a bar or whatever, you can give me there the book, I'll sign it. Yeah, hopefully, uh, hopefully you'll see you soon. It'd be nice to see you in person. Um, you never know yeah, where where might uh, where I might end up. So um, it's been yeah. a great episode. Thank you, Chad. Thank you, Sam. And uh, this has been the Bottom Dollar's Dive Shack. All right, awesome. Best podcast on the planet, buddy. Thank you, guys. Yeah, it's good. It's an entertaining one. All right, we're out. <laughs> okay. See you guys. See you, Chad. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode of the Bottom Dwellers Dive Shack. Make sure you like and follow on our social media pages on Instagram and Facebook. Please share this podcast with your friends or anyone interested in commercial diving. The only way that uh, we can make this successful is if we do get a lot of people that are listening. We get more listeners, we get more sponsors, and that means more free stuff for you guys. That's right. We are hooking up all of our diver brothers and sisters in the trade. And uh, if you keep sharing and liking, we're able to do that a lot more. Our Instagram is at bottomdwellersds. Our Facebook is Bottom Dwellers Dive Shack. And you can always like and follow me at LB Diver on both. The Bottom Dwellers Dive Shack is available on all podcast platforms, Apple, Spotify, Anchor. We also have it streaming on our website at thebottomdwellers.com. So keep listening, keep it safe, keep it salty. This is LB Diver, out. <laughs>